0: Last week, as we finished out chapter 19, we ended in the middle of a contentious brawl. Not among us, but in the story here. Chapter 19 ends with Israel and Judah fighting, arguing, really. Now, they, they've been at war. Actually, David and, and his followers, his people, who ran when Absalom came in and tried to take over and, and, and anoint himself, crown himself king of Israel. Well, David ran. You remember all that story, and we've covered that over the last several weeks. Well, now he's come back. And Israel and Judah are together And they're arguing over whose idea it was To restore David to the throne I mean this is a brilliant argument For these people to be having right now No, we we said we would would restore David to the throne No, 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 it was our idea Yeah, but we said it first Yeah, but we were thinking it before you said it I mean it's childish and foolish and ridiculous And here's the thought Maybe it was the Lord's idea to restore David to the throne Maybe it didn't originate with Israel or Judah at all, but it was God's plan all along. After all, He's the one who said in 2 Samuel 7.16, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So very clearly, God knew what He was doing. And though David had to run, God was going to restore him. This was in the plan. And what Israel and Judah misunderstood and what we must learn in our lives is that our plans and our paradigms and our programs are never the issue. What's at issue is simply this, Psalm 127 verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor... Build it in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early. It's vain for you to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. It's vanity for us to work hard at thinking that's going to gain us some kind of righteousness or some kind of strength or some kind of power or some kind of achievement in this world. And that's important in church life. Because oftentimes, churches, we get to the building process of things, and we get so about building our particular church, we forget the fact that unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor do so in vain. God told David, I'll build you a house. It was also the Lord who said, I will build my church, Matthew 16, 18. Very clear words. Jesus didn't say, go out and build churches. He said, I will build my church. And there's so much religious contention and doctrinal arguments that would fall silent if we could just recognize this simple truth. It's the Lord who establishes. It's His business. It's, in reality, and I've said this from time to time, it's His problem. You know? My church is struggling, having a hard time. It's His problem. It's not mine. It's His church. You know? If the kingdom's not seeming to go so well in our country, in our nation, in the world today. It's His problem. It's His kingdom. It's His people. It's His concern. It's His focus. Man, I'm along for the ride and I'm doing it because it's what He wants to do. Psalm 2, verse 6. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I have established Him. The Lord speaking about the Lord. God speaking about Jesus. I have established Him. This is my plan. I have done it. I will do it. The Lord establishes. But the real problem with all this argument and contention, and anytime there's infighting, is that it breeds discontent and it creates an atmosphere for contentious people to crop up and cause problems and that's exactly what happens here. Israel and Judah are fighting. They're arguing over a stupid thing. Who brought David back? And a contentious man rises up in the midst of this to cause more problems. This man is named Sheba. Verse 1 of chapter 20, as we continue on. Now a worthless fellow happened to be there, whose name was Sheba, the son of Becree, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, O Israel. So get the picture. They're fighting. We said we'd bring David back. No, we said we bring David back. And finally, a man of Israel, a Benjamite, interesting, a descendant of Saul, stands up and goes, See, see, I told you this was no good. Forget it. I'm out of here. Let's go. Get out of here. Everybody he blows the horn and he's inviting all Israel to revolt. Sheba is revolting in more ways than one. Verse 2 says, So all the men of Israel withdrew from following David and followed Sheba, the son of the But the men of Judah remained steadfast to their king from the Jordan even to Jerusalem. David's not even back in Jerusalem yet, and already the country's divided. Which is such the nature of man. Now, Sheba, interesting, his name in the Hebrew, Sheba, is, is simply the number seven. His name means seven. He was the seventh son of Bikri, so Bikri named him seven. It was just an easy thing. George Costanza, if you ever watched Seinfeld, thought seven was a great name for, for a child. But Sheba, the word seven, now we got to remember seven is the biblical number of completion. And I looked at Sheba and I thought about this, and I said, you know, that fits because he is a complete idiot. <laughs> he fits the picture. He is referred to in the Bible as a worthless fellow. A worthless fellow, I mean right into the very beginning of verse one, a worthless fellow happened to be their name Shiva, and this this phrase worthless fellow in the Hebrew it's Ishbelial. Ishbelial, which means literally a man of belial. Worthless fellow. And you see this crop up. In fact, the, the writer of first and second Samuel, the, the writers, the authors, enjoy that phrase. They use it over ten times in different ways. Ishbelial, man of belial. And this favorite phrase here, in the Hebrew mind, Belial simply means worthless, possibly destructive. But it's mainly just you call someone Belial or a man of Belial because Belial is, is worthlessness, it's godlessness, it's base, it's rebelliousness. And it only occurs one time in the New Testament where Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.15, What harmony has Christ with Belial? I think it's interesting. Because we assume that Belial is Satan, and we're right. But the word Belial means worthless. So we can declare with Scripture right now that Satan is worthless. I like saying that. Satan is worthless. And there's a connection here between the worthlessness of a man like Shiva and the worthlessness of Satan. That connection is simply this, and I can't say it any stronger than this, to cause dissension, to cause disunity, and to cause disharmony among brothers is an act as an agent of the devil. If you are divisive, you are acting as an agent of the devil. If you are causing disunity, trying to break things up, that is a satanic activity. It is the act of worthlessness, the act of belial, and act of Satan. And I'm not talking about differences. And I think we need to understand that, because in a church setting, anytime you gather more than two people, there's going to be an argument eventually. There are going to be differences of opinion. That is, is par for the course. And I've seen over the years in church fellowship that there are often differences of opinion. Differences are fine. That's okay. As long as they're worked through in love and compassion with an aim to unity at the end of the day. But dissension and disunity to drive a wedge and to break apart, this is an act of the devil. And I just mentioned that because I want us again to commit ourselves to be those who, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, those who walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. That we walk with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. This, this is not easy stuff. Please don't just bypass this as, okay, Rich reading a verse, what's coming next? Listen. We have been called to walk with humility and gentleness and patience showing tolerance for one another in love. How do you tolerate those around you? And is there someone you're having trouble tolerating right now in your life? This is very practical stuff. Paul says we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And I'd like you to keep your finger in 2 Samuel and flip over to Psalm 133. Psalm 133. Now, this is interesting to me because... I'm not seeing a big problem in this area at the bridge. I'm not seeing a big problem of dissension or disunity or people causing trouble. I haven't. I'm not seeing this at all, and yet this keeps coming up in our study, again and again and again. As you've been over here for the last few weeks, you've heard this over and over. This return to not being bitter, not being divisive, not being argumentative, but being loving. It keeps coming up, and, and I don't know why. All I know is that this happens to be where we are in the word and the Lord keeps pointing it out and he's pointing it out for some reason. Maybe there's something personally going on in some of our lives that we need to be dealing with. Maybe there is dissension and discord and disunity that is coming down the road and the Lord is preparing now saying I want you to be ready to be a unified fellowship and not to be broken apart. But whatever the reason, it keeps coming up. And I I flipped over to Psalm 133. It's one of my favorite psalms. Three short verses. And I wanted you to read it with me. I want you to see it in your own Bibles. And pay attention to something here. It says, Behold how good and pleasant it is, David's writing this, for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's important. David's had both. He's had unity with his brothers. He's also had a great amount of discord and disunity. He knows What's good and what's bad here And he says it's so pleasant To dwell in unity He says verse 2 It's like the precious oil Upon the head Coming down upon the beard Even Aaron's beard Coming down upon the edge Of his robes It's like the dew of Hermon Coming down upon the mountains of Zion For there the Lord Commanded the blessing Life forever And I wanted you to read this And think about this It's a pretty familiar psalm It's one that would be good To go back to time and time again Even to memorize but there's something of the geography of Israel that, if you know it, speaks powerfully in this psalm. The geography of Israel, he says it's like well, he says it's like precious oil, and then he says it's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. Well, Hermon and Zion are not even close to each other. If you've been to Israel, or if you've looked at a map of Israel, you know Mount Hermon is in the far north. It's that snow-capped peak. It's a huge mountain. When it would rival some of the mountains in Washington, it is a massive mountain far north of Israel. Mountains of Zion are the mountains on which Jerusalem sits, in the heart of Israel. So how is it that the dew of Hermon is resting on Mount Zion? And I began to think about this and think, well, that's how it works. That's how the atmosphere works. You know, the rain falls, and then it gets kind of, as the sun causes it to evaporate, it evaporates back up into the clouds, and then it gets spread out. And what David is saying here, and I think this is powerful and poetic at the same time. In the same way the dew of Hermon evaporates into the sky and falls on the mountains of Zion, may we be unified. The same dew that's there is the dew that's here. The same moisture, the same rejuvenation, the same refreshment that Herman receives, Zion receives. It is all one nation, David's saying. And we need to be unified with that kind of a picture. And by the way, both the dew in this psalm and the oil of this psalm remind us of the greatest single unifying factor in the Christian life, and that's the Holy Spirit. The dew is a picture of the Spirit living water. And oil throughout the Bible is always a picture of the Spirit. Whenever you see oil mentioned, think about the Spirit. What is it saying here? Precious oil, sweet dew, it pictures the Spirit of Christ. Well, Sheba, this man of Belial, go back to 2 Samuel now, he stirs the plot, and the people of Israel flee and David continues back to Jerusalem and the plot thickens. Verse 3, then David came to his house at Jerusalem and the king took the ten women, the concubines whom he had left to keep the house and he placed them under guard and provided them with sustenance but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as widows. And there's a great compassion, in fact a great deal of grace that David shows here. Because of what happened with Absalom, and you recall, Absalom went into these ten concubines and he slept with them. Didn't sleep, he lay with them. In the sight of all Israel, trying to lay claim to his father's rule and authority. He violates these ten women who belonged previously to David and David would have every right under Jewish law to divorce all ten of them and send them out on their ears. But he doesn't. Instead of divorcing them, he treats them as widows with kindness, provision, They remain there, taken care of, looked after. I know the phrase says they are shut up, but they are treated, what that's saying is they are treated as widows. They are cared for by David to the day of their death, but he himself will never go into them again because of the way they were violated. I love that about David. He denies himself his own pleasure in this case to care for others and to do what would be the right thing to do. Well, verse 4 going on, Then the king said to Amasa, Call out the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to call out the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time for which he had appointed him. Remember, Amasa was commander of Absalom's army, Joab of David's, but when David tried to come back and unify politically the people, he said, Now Amasa, I want you to be over the army instead of Joab. And it was a move to try and bring Israel back in and say, look, I'm even going to use your commander as my commander. So Amas is in charge, but what's interesting in these couple of verses is it appears to me that Amas' heart is not in it. He's delaying. He's not jumping at the chance to serve David. He's delaying longer than the set time which David had appointed him to get to work, to be busy. He's moving slow. And it's a picture of heartlessness. He, he's just not in it. Well, verse 6 going on. So David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bakri will do us more harm than Absalom. So take your Lord's servants and pursue him, so that he does not find for himself fortified cities and escape from our sight. So Joab's men went out after him. Abishai and Joab are brothers. They're both still fighting in the army. And so they go out. They're on the run. They're pursuing. And Masa is still nowhere to be found at this point. But as they pursue him, along with the cherapites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. Let me point this out quickly. The Cherithites and the Pelethites, those names come up every now and then. If you're wondering who they are, they were mercenary Philistines. They were people from the land of, of Philistia, but they had attached themselves to David when he was living down there. And they are fiercely loyal to David, and they stand with him the rest of his life. So these are foreigners who are now fighting for David and they stick with David that's who they are and all the mighty men and they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba the son of the and when they were at the large stone which is in Gibeon, Amasa came out to meet them so finally he's catching up well I guess I better do something you know because I'm the commander and Joab was dressed in his military attire and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened at its waist and as he went forward it fell out Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa was not on guard against the sword which was in Joab's hand, so he struck him in the belly with it and poured out his inward parts on the ground and did not strike him again, and he died. And then Joab, Abishai, his, bro- his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Becree. And now there stood by him one of Joab's young men. He said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. But Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, he removed Amasa from the highway into the field and threw a garment over him when he saw that everyone who came by him stood still. I, I told you last week, we see a story called the a Mess of Amasa, because that's what's going on here. He gets impaled, run through by Joab's sword. What's happening here? Well, I, I think if we put it together, Joab has all this military attire on, and the sword falls on the ground. I think he was probably trying to hide it. It falls on the ground. It's like, oh, let me get that. On. And he comes right up and stabs it into Amasa. And he assassinates him and why would Joab do that because he took his job man I'm the commander I don't care what David says I'm the commander you've come and you've taken my job and so he steps into it and he kills Amasa and Amasa ends up wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road guts hanging out and everybody's just shocked they're staring at the situation just looking at it finally someone says for Joab and for David let's go Someone was trying to rally the people who trusted in David behind Joab, which is kind of like trying to rally people politically. I was talking to our daughter about this this evening. I'm not, I'm not a Republican because I'm Christian, or a Christian because I'm Republican. The two actually are two separate things, and I think it's important that we keep them separate. Or a Democrat because you're a Christian, or or whatever. That, that we keep that separate, and we don't lockstep. With a certain party or persuasion My decision is to follow the Lord Jesus Wherever he leads And whatever he desires And whatever he determines for me So someone says Let's follow Joab and and follow David At the same time And and Amas is wallowing there And I read this story And I thought Okay, what do we do with this? (laughs) How do we apply this? Where's the practical application here? And I only say that Because I believe there is one There's probably more than one but anytime I see a sword in Scripture, you know what I think of? What do you think of when you see the word sword? The word. The sword of the word. What's the connection here? Well, Revelation 1.16, describing Jesus, says, Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And with it, by the way, he will destroy the nations. In other words, with the word of his breath, he will wipe out the nations when he returns. It's going to be an amazingly quick battle. Using the sword of his mouth, which is the word. And there's a picture there of the spoken word of Jesus coming out of his mouth. Ephesians 6.17 says, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And by the way, we've mentioned this before, that word, word there. Related to the sword of the spirit. The sword is called the word of God in, in the Greek rima. It's also called, the sword is called the word of God in the Greek logos. And there's a third word for the scriptures in the Bible which is graphe. So there's three words that all deal with the same thing. I'll explain why I'm telling you that in a moment. But Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Gang, the Spirit of the living God is in the Word, and the Word is of the Spirit. And I want to be sure we understand that we don't divide the two out As though they were separate The Bible tells us the word The very word that is in your hands is living and active There's no other book ever been written by the hand of man That you could say is alive Well there are fantasy stories Chronicles of Narnia, Harry Potter That talk about books that are alive It's all fantasy This is not fantasy This book is alive It is living and active It has the ability As we sang earlier Ancient words ever true Changing me And changing you And the time that I spend in this word The time we spend in the word of God Changes us In a radical way Unlike anything else It's living and active But I want you to understand The word is the word is the word And what I mean by that Is whether it's the logos that is the, the word that, that John talks about in the beginning was the word, and the word was flesh and dwelt among us. But that logos is that, is that Greek word for the mind and the reason, the word. It's attached to Jesus in Revelation 19, where it says he has the name on him, and it is the word of God. The word is the logos, but the rima, that's that other Greek word, which means spoken word, the word that said. Or even again, the graphe, which is that word for scriptures. Anytime you see the word scripture written in the scriptures, it's graphe in the Greek. Logos, remus, rima, graphe. Three words for the word, and they're all the word. And I've noticed, and it's interesting to me, that in Christianity today, that there, there continues to be kind of a discussion or, or debate among people as to which is more significant, the logos or the rhema Because the Rima as the spoken word of God. Well, that's the revelation I get in my life. And I can get that without the Bible. And I'm telling you, that's dangerous territory to try and separate the two out. To try and say, well, I don't care what the Logos says because I received the Rima. It's the same word. It is all the same word. It is all God's word. And listen, he will never contradict himself. And one word of God will never invalidate another word of God. He will never come out and tell you something that is different or other than or contradictory to what he has already written down. The word is the word is the word. And so as I've said before, the way we know that we've received a word from the Lord or we're hearing an actual spoken word from God into our hearts or into our minds, it's tested against the written word. Is it consistent? Is it what he's already shown us? Is he just you know, enlightening us? Is he illuminating us? The word that we already have in our hands, Mormonism, Mormonism claims the Book of Mormon supersedes Scripture, that is the Bible, anywhere that there is a contradiction. Well, how inconsistent is that? Mormonism even goes further to claim that any new revelation received by a prophet in the Mormon church that contradicts an old revelation of a prophet in the Mormon church, the new revelation is the one you go with. So you can change it any time you want you can make it as different or unique as you want it to be whatever this generation needs that's where you go and it's not just in Mormonism it's in the church where we keep finding people rising up and saying this generation needs a fresh expression I'll tell you what this generation needs the ancient word Mm -hmm. that is as powerful today and as relevant today as it ever was there is I'm noticing this I've been reading a lot of things about this lately and I've talked a bit about the emergent church But there seems to be this conglomeration happening in Christianity. And it's a mixture of the emergent ideals and values and principles and old kind of um, Catholic um, rituals being brought in and a new Pentecostalism. And I was thinking about this through the week. That this this new Pentecostalism, and, and it's, for lack of a better phrase, it's it's a charismatic approach to the Lord. But there's something different about it from old Pentecostalism. I mean, if you know, I was not raised in the Pentecostal church, but having done some research and talking to a lot of people, looking back, I happen to know that when the Pentecostal movement began in the early 1900s, it was very word grounded. Yes, there was a lot that was going on with the, you know people saying holy rollers and and, and all this and there was a, a great expression within the Pentecostal movement of the work of the Holy Spirit, but it was word grounded. Not so much in this new attitude that's coming out today where people are closing the word as irrelevant and they're saying, "But I'm receiving a word from God." And so we're seeing in churches this bizarre mix bringing in ritual Mixing it in with different different types of, of worship and expressions. And mixing in this idea that, that God just kind of speaks and, and whether or not it's it's we don't you know this is okay, but what we need is just just out here. That's why I'm pausing and taking some time with this. Gang, the Holy Spirit never contradicts scripture. He enlivens it. His presence with us is what makes page words on the page that, yeah, they're, they're just print, but they jump off the page. They come alive and they show us and we see things. You know, a sword goes through a masa and we think, okay, great. Bloody history. No, applicable history. And let me tell you how. There is a time, and we see this in the story before us, there is a time when our use of the word is dangerous, is inappropriate. One time that I can think of And it's when we, like Joab, drive the word into a brother, when we use it to wound a sister, when we use the word of God to cut down another believer. Proverbs chapter 30 verse 14 says, There's a kind of man whose teeth are like swords, and his jaw teeth, that is his fangs, (laughs) like knives, to devour the afflicted from the earth and the needy from among men. We are never, ever, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are never to use the word... To leave a brother or sister wallowing in their own blood. As we see with Joab and Amasa. We never pull out the sword and drive it into someone to to get harmed. We never drive the sword into someone to to elevate ourselves into a place of position or power or authority. That's why it's called the sword of the spirit. Because we need the spirit's help to handle it right. I was just having another conversation with Hannah yesterday We are driving home from, from picking her up at school and, and she was talking about how a guy came, came up and was arguing with her about Because he knew she was a Christian Arguing with her about the truth of the Bible and Of course he brought up what's getting to be kind of an old argument Well, there are a lot of Gospels out there, you know So who knows that they chose the right ones I mean, there were hundreds of Gospels written Yeah, you know, there weren't First of all, that's an absolute fallacy. Second of all, the hundreds are the many gospels or the extra gospels that were written, tended to be written much later, like 300, third century, fourth century, and were not written by people who were contemporaries of Jesus. So Hannah and I were talking about all that, but I noticed in my daughter something that I that I saw myself when I was in high school, and that was a desire to take this and just you know cut into people stab them and take them down you know oh, I know the word you know and if I could get into an argument with someone about the Bible and win and they'd walk off going and I'd sit there and I'd go yeah alright <laughs> I'm in command now just like Joab and I was able to tell Hannah yesterday you know what be careful sweetheart what, what this young man needs more than anything else is grace and he needs compassion and he needs to hear about Jesus so don't just try to win arguments And we're not called just to win arguments. And especially within the fellowship of believers. We're not here to fight and cut each other down to to raise ourselves up. The sword of the Spirit. We need the Spirit's help. And if we bear the sword of the Spirit by the power of the Spirit, the result's going to be the fruit of the Spirit. So the Word is the Word is the Word. And it all belongs to one and the same Spirit of God. I am... from time to time will struggle as I'm studying at home because I've learned that the most inappropriate place for me to use uh, the Bible for my own jabs and stabs against people is when I'm teaching and preaching. And there are times where it's easy to do. There are times I'll step up here, and it's not any time recent here, but I'll stand up and I'll know of an issue going on in the fellowship. Man, I could easily open up the Word Thomas, you know what I'm talking about we, we can, you know, as pastors open up and go Well, this morning I'm going to be talking about tithing Happening to know that someone is struggling with it And the whole time you're just looking at them You know, I told you it's what the Word says, man You know, get with it, you know Or you pick some topic where you know someone's struggling And that's why I'm thankful that we've been led to just study through the Bible Because I don't really have that opportunity the worst place that I can think of for me to stand up and use as a platform for jabs and stabs is in preaching and teaching. It needs to just be God's Word. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to be poked a little bit from time to time. It doesn't mean you're not going to be cut to the heart. But I can promise you this. If you're cut to the heart by anything that comes from up here, it's not me. Because I pretty much don't have a clue what's going on in this church. Anyway, moving on. Romans chapter 15, verse 1. Paul said the following. He said, We who are strong ought to bear... The weaknesses of those without strength, and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. And Paul says, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, even the mess of Amasa. Whatever was written in previous times, it's here for a reason. Written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. That's why the word is so important. It's the encouragement that brings us hope. The Lord alone knows how to use the sword of the word surgically. Our role is to carry it and use it under his authority and not for our own. Jesus said to Peter and you might remember this scene in the garden he said in Matthew 26, 52 put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword will perish by the sword he says Peter if you want to use the sword like that if you want to fight with the sword you're going to die by it I don't need you to defend me that's where Jesus goes on by the way and says Peter I could have called 10,000 angels and I don't need you and your wimpy little sword play and I think it's funny how the Bible describes what Peter did he pulls out his sword and he lops off the ear of the servant of the high priest. A really, you know, threatening guy. He doesn't go after the captain of the guard. He goes after the high priest servant. Now here's the wimpy little guy. I can get him. I'll take him right out, you know. And Peter goes after him and Jesus says, Peter, I don't need you to defend me. And that's important, gang, because when we take a defensive posture with the sword, it can work against us. Put it this way, if someone gets their ear cut off by you, how are they going to hear the word? So don't use the sword as a weapon to win battles, aside from winning the battle of the heart, speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15 tells us, and letting Jesus do the defending. Well, someone finally clears the mess of Amasa off the road. It says, as soon as he was removed from the highway, all the men passed on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of the Cree. Now he went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel and to Beth and to and all the Beirites, and they were gathered together and also went after him, and they came and besieged him at Abel Beth and they cast up a siege ramp against the city, and it stood by the rampart, and all the people who were with Joab were wreaking destruction in order to topple the wall. A little wise woman called from the city, Here, here, please tell Joab, come here that I may speak with you. So he approached her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. And she said to him, Listen to the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I'm listening. And then she spoke, saying, Formerly, they used to say they will surely ask advice at a bell, and thus they ended the dispute. In other words, this city was known for the art of negotiation. This city had a reputation for being the place where you went to find out how do I deal with this conflict. She's saying, We, we have some wisdom here. She says, I am of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You're seeking to destroy a city and even a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? And Joab replied, Far be it. Far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. Such is not the case. But a man from the hill country of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Becree by name, has lifted up his hand against King David. Only hand him over, and I will depart from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head will be thrown to you over the wall. <laughs> yeah. you seen Lord of the Rings? <laughs> I was watching it on Sunday when I was sick. You know, the heads just roll in that movie. It's, it's disgusting. And then I read this, and I thought, Okay, well, you know, it's what happened. <laughs> and then the woman wisely came to all the people, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Vecree, and they threw it to Joab. Go along! <laughs> Through the head. Yeah. And so he blew the trumpet, and they were dispersed from the city, each to his tent. And Joab also returned to the king, at Jerusalem. And it's pretty violent, but it's, it's a great example of what happens when someone is rebellious, when someone revolts. He was thinking, here's my chance to get ahead. And he lost it instead. You know? As they drop-kicked it over the wall. The book of Jude tells us in verse 18, And the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause division. Worldly minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And I think it's interesting that Jude doesn't say, go after these guys, prove them wrong. What he says is, beloved, there are going to be worldly minded spiritually devoid divisive people you keep yourself in the love you be about the love of God you wait anxiously for the mercy to be shown when Jesus comes that's your part in this verse 23 says Joab was over the whole army of Israel and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites and Adoram was over the forced labor and Jehoshaphat the son of Ahilud was the recorder Sheba was the scribe, and Zadok and Abiathar were the priests, and Ira the Jerite was also a priest to David. So what we're seeing here at the end of chapter 20 is things are finally starting to get back to normal. We're getting organization again in the kingdom of David. And God's not a God of disorder. He's a God of order. And so he's getting things organized, David's getting things organized, but the day ain't over yet. The next 14 verses represent one of the more difficult to explain and understand uh, sections in all of the Bible. This is a tough one. Watch this. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the presence of the Lord and the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. You understand what's happening here? Israel is having a famine Because Saul killed some people early in his reign. Read on. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. Thus David said to the Gibeonites, what should I do for you, and how can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Well, the Gibeonite said to him, We have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, I will do for you whatever you say. So they said to the king, The man who consumed us and who planned to exterminate us from remaining within any border of Israel, let seven men of his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeon of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I'll give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of the Lord which was between them, between David and Saul's son Jonathan. So the king took two sons of Rizkah, the daughter of Aiya, Armoni and Mephibosheth, is a different Mephibosheth, whom she had borne to Saul. And the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she had borne to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Moholophite. And he gave them, these seven guys, he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the mountain before the Lord, so that the seven of them fell together, and they were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Rizpah, the daughter of Aiya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until it rained on them from the sky. And she allowed neither the birds of the sky to rest on them by day or the beasts of the field by night... And when it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, then David went and he took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the open square of Bethshon, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day that the Philistines struck down Saul in Gilboa. And he brought up the, the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged, And they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son in the country of Benjamin in Zila, in the grave of Kish his father. And thus they did all that the king commanded and after that God was moved by prayer for the land. I mean this reads like, forgive me, like a pagan story. This reads like something you would assume a pagan king would do to appease his pagan gods. A covenant is violated. Let's take seven men, send them out, have them hang, and let's pay for it. And then maybe, maybe the gods will be satisfied. That's the way this thing reads. And in going through this, I I, again ask the question, what do we do with this story? And I'll tell you what, read through it a few times and we'll talk about it on Sunday, okay? I uh, know you hate when I do that. There's a reason I do that. Actually, with this one, this, this, uh, this whole study, these first 14 verses, was four last Sunday, and then I got sick. So we're going to talk about it this coming Sunday. But there's a reason I do that, and I wanted to mention this to you. From time to time, we'll come across something really hard. And if you've noticed, a lot of times the really hard teaching, the hard to understand, I'll save it and I'll do it on Sunday morning. And the reason is, as far as I'm concerned, the harder the teaching, the more important for the whole body to hear. The more I want everybody to be aware of what's going on. And so when we come across tough stuff like this, and maybe I'm just a glutton for punishment, but when we come across the hard teachings, I think it's important for us all to work through together. And so I say that for when the larger body is gathered together. For those of you who can't be here on Sunday morning, and I understand that there are a few, see me afterwards and, and we'll work this out. But it's not just salmons that David now has to deal with all of the rebellion everything's over he's back in his kingdom things just start to get settled A famine hits three years he has to deal with this whole justice mercy thing how we deal with that we'll see but then beginning in verse 15 and on through the rest of this chapter we understand that David has another problem there will be giants in the land verse 15 when the Philistines were at war again with Israel David went down and his servants with him and as they fought against the Philistines David became weary then Ishvi Who was among the descendants of the giant That word is Rapha in the Hebrew But it's referring specifically to Goliath Ishvi Benav Who was among the descendants of the giant The weight of whose spear was 300 shekels of bronze in weight That would be about 7.5 pounds he intended to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, helped him and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out again with us to battle, so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. Now it came about after this that there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. And Sibekai the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was among the descendants of, again, the giant there was war with the Philistines at Gob and Elhanan, the son of jair Oregon, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. There was war at Gath again, and there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number, and he also had been born to the giant. When he defied Israel, Jonathan the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down." These four were born to the giant in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Three things that you may want to jot down here in this last section of chapter 21. For here we are in the last days of David's life, and number one, David is still competing against giants. I would have thought it was over with. The world knows the story. Here we are 3,000 years later and everybody still knows. When you say David and Goliath, they know exactly what you're talking about. Which I think is pretty impressive. But that wasn't the only giant David had to deal with. David is now older in life. He is probably in his 60s or 70s and there are still giants in Gath. And he's still having to go up against them and fight them. Though he bested Goliath when he was just a kid... Now David, in his old age, is still dealing with giants. And I think, you know, problems don't just go away because we ignore them. They don't disappear just because we don't want to deal with them. We've been having some furnace trouble in my house. And uh, I called a guy in to to deal with the furnace. It was just making this bizarre noise, this animal noise. We could hear it in the walls. I mean, it's just like that. We thought, okay, that's probably not good. See, I'm I'm real good with, you know, technical household stuff like this. I know when there's a problem. See, and this is going on. And so we call the furnace guy, and he shows up, and he gets down there, and he starts opening it up and cleaning it out, and it is full of water. (laughs) I didn't even know a furnace could do this. But apparently it sucks so much moisture out of the air, our particular furnace can suck out as much as a gallon of water a night in the winter months. And, but there's a little thing in the motor that sends the water out and shoots it out the side and, and sends it on out of the house. Well, that thing wasn't working. It was all gunked up. So he's cleaning out the gunk getting all the water taken care of and, and cleaning it up. And he tells me as he's leaving that our motor is shot, the bearings are gone, and it's going to have to be replaced. And he said, you know, you really probably should have been serving, servicing this thing annually. Can I just get a show of hands? How many people have serviced their furnace annually? Okay, so maybe... Maybe I should have. And the rest of you better make a phone call, I'm telling you. These are things I don't think of, you know. We got the house built, we moved in, I figure it's going to be okay. You know, when the car runs out of gas, I fill it up. Oil every now and then. But, you know, I just don't think about these things. Well, anyway, that happened back at Christmas time, and I still haven't had the furnace fixed. Problems don't go away just because we ignore them. I don't know it's there, but anytime I want to deal with it, and I'm realizing that ignorance is only bliss until your furnace conks out. Wise words. You might want to jot that down. Ignorance is only bliss until your furnace conks out. But the point is this. There are giants still in Gath. David has dealt with all these other things, and yet the giants are still there, but he hasn't taken them out He hasn't dealt with them He's got too many other things on his plate Too many other problems But now their giant problems Rise up at the end of his life And they're coming after him These giants are gunning for him This, uh, this giant Goliath had sons And the giant threat remains to Israel Here are the sons' names again by the way Ishbi Banab, Which his name means he lives on the height Which is a good name for a giant He lives on the height not only is this guy a massively big guy But he lives in a very difficult place to attack Or at least he was born and raised on the heights I saw that and I thought about um, the Golan Heights in Israel And how strategic and important that piece of property is in Israel Because whoever commands the Golan Heights Which Israel right now commands Whoever commands that has the upper hand if Israel ever gives that back to Syria It will be a major problem but this man is a giant Ishvibanab lives on the height. The second giant, verse eighteen, is Saf. Saf has a wonderfully descriptive name. It means tall. So here you got a good solid name for a giant, tall guy. And then the third giant we see in the scriptures here, Goliath. Wait a minute, didn't he kill Goliath? This is Goliath too okay he's come back it's probably Goliath's twin brother and we know that from First Chronicles chapter 20 verse 5 it says there was war with the Philistines again and Elhanan the son of Jaer killed Lami the brother of Goliath the Gittite so he's called Goliath here because he's brother Goliath he may have been a, an identical twin that's a possibility here which <laughs> I feel really sorry for his mother childbirth there you know <laughs> birthing twin giants can you even imagine that But his name is Lami, according to 1 Chronicles. Lami means literally, my bread. And then the fourth giant is a six-fingered, six-toed giant who remains nameless. We don't know what his name was at all. All we can know about this guy is it's probably the genetic strain that produced such giants is responsible for the extra digits of this nameless giant. Why, though, is this giant nameless? He's just mentioned as the fourth one, who this guy Jonathan, he takes him down. Why is he nameless? Well, have you ever noticed how after a while all giants just look alike? (laughs) You know, I make statements like that, and I I see your responses. I, I I do. All giants do look alike after a while. I'm talking about giant problems. And the way that our problems, our troubles, our difficulties can seem looming and big and we just start to gather them all together until we don't even really know what the main problem is. There are so many of them that we're dealing with and facing and they all look alike and they all look insurmountable and it brings us down into this place, psychology calls it the spiral of depression. People who suffer from or deal with depression have a tendency to keep looking at every problem so much that they're, they're so giant and so huge and they all get lumped together and they all look the same and there's no way of dealing with it until it's just too much. Which by the way is why Jesus said in Matthew 6.34 Don't worry about tomorrow. Let today's trouble be enough for today. Just deal with what you got to deal with today. Yes, there are giants that are there tomorrow. Deal with it Tomorrow. You deal with what's before you today And don't let the mountains The molehills turn into mountains Don't let the giants pile up on you Face one giant at a time And by the time we get to this fourth giant That Dave is having to deal with and his men The name's not even important the important thing to know here is that David is an old man but he's still fighting giants he's still dealing with problems in Israel he's still having a hard time he has to face these three sons of Goliath and Goliath's brother Lamy, who are out for blood these guys are all going after David and so he has to fight on and I tell you this to say the following that's the way it is in the Christian life we have to keep fighting the fighting doesn't stop As long as we draw breath in our physical bodies, the battle goes on. And I don't tell you that to bum you out. I tell you that to bear you up. I don't say this to make us paranoid, but prepared to stand in these last days. Jude again wrote, "...contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints." Let's not be contentious for the faith, it's contend for the faith. And there's a difference. It's not taking the Bible and wielding it like a sword where we're just chopping people up to prove ourselves right. It's standing strong and firm in the faith that was handed down to us by the ancient word and in the truth of God. We are called to stand and fight the giants who would come against our faith. First Timothy 6.12 Paul said to Tim, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. In the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. This is how we fight. 2 Corinthians 10, 3. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculation. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. One pastor put it this way. There is no furlough from the fight of the faith. You don't take the day off. The giants are always going to be there. As long as we live, we will face them. And we are called to fight. And the fight is real. We know the enemy. In fact, we know the enemy by name. He is not some nameless, vague force out there. This this generic thing of evil. He is real. His name is Satan. He is our adversary. Jesus faced him. We face him, and it is absolute truth that he's fighting. Now listen. Ignoring the giants won't make them go away. Any more than ignoring the devil will make him go away. But you want to know what the Bible tells us? Sins, Satan, packing resistance. Where the Lord is concerned, resistance is not futile. Resistance. James four seven. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Why? Because Satan's a scavenger. Satan doesn't like a head to head fight. Satan would rather go pick on someone smaller than himself. Satan would rather go and and pick over the remains of someone who's already been hurt. He's already been messed up. He doesn't like a head-to-head. And so James says very wisely, resist him. And he'll run away. Stand up to him and say, I will not do what you're trying to tell me to do. And he'll flee from you. A great way to do that, you see it in the temptation of Jesus. Three times Jesus quotes Scripture. He quotes the logos, the rima, the graphe. He quotes the word of God and he says to Satan, I will not bow you, get behind me. And here's the word to battle with. And Satan leaves him. Luke tells us for a more opportune time, indicating he's going to be back. So we keep on fighting, but we keep on resisting. And notice the progression of these four giants' names. If you put them together in order, you have Ishbi Benav, you have Live on the Heights, So this verse, giant man, he sounds tough, insurmountable, a big guy in a difficult place to fight. But the second guy is not so bad. He's just tall. He sounds big, but he's not undefeatable. The third guy, his name, Lami, means my bread. Does that ring a bell for anyone? The name, my bread? Back when the people of Israel came into the land... They were fighting against these people. They came to Kadesh Barnea on the border of the Promised Land, and I remember, the twelve spies went into Israel to check it out. And they came back, and ten of them were shaken in their sandals. And they said, "We can't fight. They're like giants, we're like grasshoppers. They're huge. We can't go against them." Remember what Caleb said? I love this. Numbers fourteen nine. He said, "Don't fear the people of the land, for they will be our bread. They'll be our lahem in the Hebrew." Lami is from the same root word of Lachem, my bread. They're our bread. And Caleb said, Their protection is removed from them. The Lord's with us. Don't fear them. They're bread. We'll make sandwiches out of them. So we get now to the third giant in this list of giants. The first one's tough and insurmountable. The second one's tall. The third one's my bread. And the fourth one is nameless. So insignificant as this guy is not even named because by the time they get to him, they've already knocked down three giants. They just have one more to go and they take him out. And my point is this, hang in there, because the longer we fight, the stronger we get. The more we stand with the Lord, the more powerful we are in the Spirit, the less challenging and tough those giants seem. And we begin to pick them off one by one by one. Resistance is not futile. Resistance is power in the Lord. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And you might say, yeah, but David didn't. He didn't get stronger. As we see this chapter ending out, he's weak. It says David became weary. He's tired. This is the first time we've seen David go to battle and he doesn't have the strength to finish the fight. He's got to have other guys finish off the giants for him. And you may ask, well, how do I resist the devil when, like David, I'm just weary? I'm just tired. Verse seventeen. Listen to what the men of David said to him. They said, "You shall not go out again with us to battle, so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel." The lamp of Israel. That word "lamp" in the Hebrew is the word "near." It's used exclusively in the scriptures to depict two things. Psalm one, nineteen, five. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Your word and when you're running out of energy in the battle run to the word be back in the word I find that I am weakest when I'm away from the word and if I haven't been in the word every day I start to get weak spiritually I notice it that quickly and I notice that among us as brothers and sisters I see people who will stay away from the word and that's when Satan strikes and that's when we're weak and so we run back to the word don't extinguish the lamp which is the word of God Isaiah chapter 8 verse 19 says When they say to you Consult the mediums and the spiritists Who whisper and mutter Should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony If they don't speak according to this word It is because they have no dawn Run to the word when you're weary in this life When you're tired Get back to the word But there's more For a lamp in the scriptures In the ear is not just a picture of the Word, it is also a picture of one other thing. 2 Samuel 22, 29. David writes, in the next chapter, he says, in this this beautiful psalm of deliverance, he says, You are my lamp, O Lord. And the Lord illumines my darkness. And as I said before, the beauty and the power of the Word of God is the Spirit who speaks through it and who enlivens it to our hearts. The Word and the Spirit... Rick, you talk about the Word and the Spirit all the time. I know. Because for us, the Word and the Spirit are it. This is how we live and function and move and breathe and exist. And how we are strengthened in our spiritual life. In the Word and in the Spirit. Together. Simultaneously. Not one without the other. Both together. For in Scripture, the word lamp, it depicts both Word and Spirit. Bible students, you know this. The golden lampstand that stood in the tabernacle with those seven lamps on the lampstand, is a picture of the Holy Spirit. The oil that we talked about before, oil a picture of the Holy Spirit. there was oil in each one of those lamps. And those lamps illuminated the tabernacle. And the whole point was that is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And you can read and study about that yourself. Go to the book of Exodus, I believe around chapter 24 to do that. Compare that to Revelation chapter 1, where Jesus says, I'm walking around among the seven lampstands. And where Revelation chapter 1 also mentions the seven spirits that are before the throne of God, seven spirits are the Holy Spirit. It's a fascinating study. Also, Isaiah 11 verses 1 and 2 is a great place to go where you can compare the seven spirits and, and the Holy Spirit and the lampstand and all that and put all that together if you want to do that on your own time. But here's my point, gang. Let me be more specific. David could only be a representative lamp of Israel. They needed the king in Jerusalem. Go there. We don't want the lamp of Israel extinguished. If we know you're there, we will have courage and strength to fight. But David only represented the lamp of Israel. The son of David, Jesus Christ, is the lamp of Israel, is the lamp of our lives. The word is his. The spirit is his. And in case you hadn't heard this before, please understand the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is not a vague, generic force out there. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about the Spirit of Christ who He has given to us. It's Him. It's very personal. The Holy Spirit is not an it. He's a He. He is Jesus. And if you're weary, come to Jesus. If you're burned out, His power supply is unlimited. And so we have David in his old age. He competed with giants, but he continued as the lamp of Israel walking in the light and finally third thing and last thing I love this we get down to the end and we see that David is credited with the defeat of the giants he gets the credit wait a minute he was too weary to fight him yeah yeah but he gets the credit anyway and there's a wonderful wonderful point in this keep fighting because you get credit for showing up You don't have to win the battle. You don't have to take down the enemy in your own power and strength. Just show up and you get credit. The Lord is so good. We are not rewarded according to our successes in battle as much as we're rewarded for our willingness to engage. For our willingness to resist. God is so good. For this Jesus says in Revelation 22.12 Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. So he's going to say, Rick, what would you do? And I'm going to say, I showed up? And he's going to say, Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Just keep showing up to the battle. And let the Lord do the rest. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Again, it's a bloody section of Scripture and yet there's so much truth to be found in here. Our understanding of the power of Your Spirit and Your Word, the lamp, the sword, the oil, the dew, all of these things that we've seen tonight. Remind us again of the place to which we can run, the person to whom we can go for strength in this battle. And Father, if any here tonight are weary or tired of the warfare, I pray, Lord, would You buy Your Spirit And through your word, bring encouragement and strength and hope. And help us to resist until that final day. Jesus, when you come back for us again. In Jesus' name, amen.